You're listening to Fighting Terror, the podcast that explores the approaches to fighting terror and extremism in the U.S., Europe, and worldwide. With Lucinda Creighton, Senior Europe Advisor to the Counter-Extremism Project and former Europe Minister. Episode 2, Tackling Radicalization at the Grassroots Level. This podcast is brought to you by the Counter-Extremism Project, a research and advocacy group that combats the activities of terrorist and extremist groups globally. Hello and welcome. Today I'm joined by Saad Amrani, the Police Commissioner for the Brussels Capital Region in Belgium, and Liam Duffy, London-based counter-terrorism practitioner. Saad was appointed as the Chief Commissioner at the Brussels Police Department in June 2019. He also serves as the Strategic Advisor to the Commissioner-General of the Federal Police in charge of counter-terrorism and returning foreign fighters from Syria. Liam Duffy is an advisor for CEP and former Prevent Officer. He designed and delivered programs on the prevention of extremism and radicalization around the world for governments, law enforcement and civil society leaders. Thank you both for joining me from London and Brussels. Liam, you might share your experience in terms of how you identify extremism, extremist behavior on the far left, the far right, Islamist extremism. Are there particular traits that are common to all? Sure. So I think um, one of the best contributions to this entire discussion came from uh, an American academic uh, terrorism scholar uh, called J.M. Berger, who wrote a very, very short book just simply titled Extremism. And what he did was apply a kind of social identity theory to extremism. This is a massive oversimplification, but at its heart, it involves the construction of a, of a social identity and then the creation or the narrative that there's some sort of threat or crisis to that identity group. What makes an extremist group different from kind of normal political discourse, which also often follows the same template, is that extremists will advocate for some sort of action in response to that crisis or that threat, usually hostile action, not always illegal. Obviously, extremism doesn't necessarily equal terrorism. But in the case of terrorists, terrorism would be that action. Other times in history, we've seen ethnic cleansing and genocide. Some groups engage in hate crime and general hostilities as well. So it's really about that hostile action in, in response to a perceived threat or crisis. And in terms of recognising the different forms of extremism, I know I've spoken a little bit about this before, is that we're pretty good in Western countries at recognising far-right groups. So we know when we see the English Defence League or Britain first on a march, we can see tattoos and flags and, and certain slogans are definitely markers of the far-right. When it comes to Islamist extremism or the non-violent type, not just the jihadist type, because obviously there's a much larger movement behind jihadism called Islamism, political Islam. We're not quite as good at recognising that, I think. And, and part of that's just because we're not as culturally, religiously familiar with some of the terminology involved. But also, you know, the, these groups operate in an entirely different way. A lot of groups in the non-violent Islamist scene will have people who are very well educated, very articulate, often middle class, wear, wearing suits and ties and working with governments and working with law enforcement. And they run charities and other sorts of ventures. So it's not the kind of snarling skinhead extremism that we might think of. And it's not the gunman on a, a city centre somewhere in Europe that we're thinking of. It's a much more long term kind of weathering threat. And I don't think we're quite as good at recognising that um, in the, the, the nonviolent Islamist uh, extremism picture. And Saad, do you find the same challenges in identifying this type of nonviolent extremism? 
Yes, indeed, I recognize everything that has been explained by Liam and by this American uh, specialist. As I've said, I would just have to add to these two extremisms that you have mentioned, far-right and Islamist extremism. Also, another extremism that nobody talks about a lot, that is the, the far-left extremism, which is present on the field. And all those three prey on different uh, communities based on socioeconomics, the weaknesses that these communities can show at some point of the history. But there is one thing that is common to those three uh, extremisms. That is to say, what I would call the vector, that is to say the ideology. Different politicians, experts, observers all around the world actually try to analyze different extremist movements based on some form of classical matrix that they could use basically with other movements or other problems, theological issues. Actually, these movements are characterized by a subset of vectors, of uh, elements of ideology, and the way they distribute it, disseminate it across our societies is pretty much common to those three. And failing to recognize that behind all those movements, there are forms of ideology that are structured, could be identified, could be studied, described, is already a major problem. For example, for political Islam or Islamic extremism, what's in the name, there are different, I would say, expressions that are used. Many observers, many specialists and politicians and experts, uh, by the way, have failed to actually identify, you know, the, the ideological element and they start talking about poverty, political issues in certain countries, and so forth. They indeed do play a role, but it's not the only element. These experts fail to recognize the strength of the message, and that strength of the message can reach not only weak people, but also reach people who are highly educated and so forth. The second element I would like to add is that we have had the tendency in the last years to try to describe these forms of extremisms as we were describing at the same time, you know, terrorism or the make a link with terrorism. Actually, there's not necessarily a link between terrorist activities and those groups. Many of them run charities, do politics, are contributing to different activities on the field with law enforcement, with local officials and so forth, and they do not engage in terrorist activities. So by always trying to recognize those groups through looking for signs of terrorist activities, actually makes us make a, a terrible mistake by missing the, the signals or recognizing those who are potentially dangerous for the society in a different way. Terrorism is a very unfortunate activity, a dramatic one. There's loss of life, and we have to combat terrorism in all its shapes and forms. But actually, it's not the only danger. The biggest danger, to my humble point of view, which is also producing some forms of violence and terrorism, is actually the infiltration of those movements in our social fabric, but also in political activities. What's common to those three extremisms that I have mentioned is that they are all engaged in one way or another in classical political activities. And in that sense, I would use an expression or a concept used by an Israeli specialist, Boaz Ganor, who talked about hybrid organizations. And I think this is the thing that we have to be paying attention to in the next years, how to identify hybrid organizations that have one dark side that actually works on a long-term agenda. All of them have a long-term agenda, which is actually changing their societies, the societies they're living in, or changing the communities they are working with or working on completely. This is something that many observers and politicians and specialists have failed to recognize that they have a long-term agenda, the three of them. 
This is really interesting, Sad, because if you look at government strategies, they are largely geared towards violent extremism and ultimately terrorism. And understandably, I suppose, because the threat of terrorism is obviously something that plays on the minds of their voters and of the public at large. But I think the idea of trying to understand nonviolent extremism is perhaps the aspect that is forgotten in terms of public policy. And I'd be interested to hear your thoughts and those of Liam on, on organizations that have really managed to develop a coherent, inspiring ideology that targets people and brings them along. I think one good example from the point of view of political Islam is, of course, Muslim Brotherhood. It's a nonviolent organization, but it has inspired ultimately a lot of violent extremism across Europe and further afield. Is that something that you've seen and witnessed on the ground in Belgium and in the UK? Absolutely. There's something that I would like to mention which is quite important as a result of those four or five years of terrorism in Brussels and Paris and so forth, since the cells were all connected to the Belgian connection, I would say. There has been a parliamentary commission, bipartisan, you know, and they were to understand, you know, what happened in Belgium in the last years. The last part of this huge report, I think, is unique and it's a game changer. They decided to focus on what they called the environment to try to understand what happened. I use my own expression. I talk about the ecosystem. The ecosystem is pretty much, you know, this fertile ground in which different actors with a long-term agenda can try to influence and prey on certain communities and bring them from point A to point B. They do have a very long-term agenda. You mentioned the Muslim Brotherhood. The Muslim Brotherhood, they think in decades. They don't think in days or months or weeks. They think in decades. And they don't necessarily engage in terrorist activities. These movements, Muslim Brotherhood is just one of them. There are other actors, foreign actors that have tremendous budgets and try to influence all those communities. They invest in a long-term approach that will produce ultimately the low-hanging fruits of what they're aiming at. And 30 years later, 40 years later, you end up having communities who are completely changing their attitude, their allegiance. They stop following the local regulations, the local constitution, and so forth. And some of them, due to the nature of the vector, of the ideological component, as I said, who are the weak-minded and so forth, can be instrumentalized into committing violent acts. So what I wanted to say is that terrorism is only one small byproduct of a whole approach. And by focusing on just a bunch of groups and the horrible acts that they commit, we miss the bigger picture. The bigger picture will produce the next wave because you haven't focused on different vectors. The ideology is the foreign actors who try to work on our communities. If you neutralize that group, put them in jail or they are neutralized physically, there will always be a room for the next group. Remember, since 9-11, a lot of people thought, okay, so we have to neutralize Bin Laden. Okay, New Bin Laden has been neutralized. Do you think we have stopped terrorism or Salafism? Of course we haven't. When people disappear, you can kill people, but you can't kill ideas like that easily. And the problem is that the ideology continues to be funneled and disseminated in our communities. And that's what needs to be addressed, be it for far right, for far left, or for Islamic extremism. All extremisms have this ideological component that needs to be tackled. That's a really excellent overview of this ecosystem that you've described. Liam, you have previously spoken of the two key drivers for radicalization, 
ideology, which we've been talking about, and grievance. Maybe elaborate a little bit in terms of how grievance can be played upon as part of this process. First of all, I can't possibly take original credit for talking about ideology and grievance in this context. Plenty of other people have trodden that path before, but just picking up on what you touched on in your previous question and what Saad has touched on a couple of times, I think in a global sense, if we can call it CVE, countering violent extremism or terrorism prevention, there has been too often a tendency to downplay the ideological role in violence. And you'll go to training sessions delivered at a grassroots level or see guidance documents and they'll talk about push and pull factors and things like that, which, you know, to an extent, fair enough. You know, we have to try and simplify this extremely complex phenomenon of why people commit violent acts in as much as we can. We have to make it make sense to people. But when we're talking about push and pull factors, where does individual agency come into that? And second of all, where does the ideology come into it? You can go through all these push and pull factors like structural and environmental factors like poverty, education, but surely ideological vulnerability or ideology as a pull factor is really, really important. And I do think there's been a tendency to downplay that exactly as Saad said. Now, if you look at the prevent strategy, the UK's community level terrorism prevention, there are two main objectives of it. One is to prevent individuals getting involved in terrorism. For that, we have a safeguarding mechanism, which, as Saad said, has put radicalization and terrorism alongside a lot of other social concerns like joining gangs or domestic violence. The second objective is to respond to the ideological challenge. I would argue that we've gone so far to the first part of putting it alongside all these other concerns that we've depoliticized counterterrorism, which is a really strange thing to do. Although there's not a lot of agreed definitions on terrorism, most of us can agree that terrorism is violence for a political or an ideological objective. So we're really doing the best that we can to counter that if we've depoliticized it. Is that driven by a fear of tackling thorny political issues? Is it political correctness? A bit of both of those, definitely. The nonviolent Islamist groups have actively sought to downplay the role of ideology in violence as well, because clearly they don't want scrutiny on their own ideology and their own role in contributing to this radicalization, especially since around, let's say, since ISIS started recruiting a lot. Because we wanted to put it along safeguarding concerns like drugs, gangs, FGM, domestic violence, that meant that counterterrorism was no longer the preserve of security agencies or law enforcement. It meant that we had to enlist the support of social workers and community groups and teachers. And these are not people who would ordinarily want the state counterterrorism policies encroaching on their day-to-day existence, which in many ways is totally fair. So I think I think we had to play on the aspect of it being a safeguarding concern in order to gain that kind of assent and consent for people to consider it part of their day job. And I know that sounds cynical, but that's not in any way to delegitimize doing it whatsoever. But so it's a little bit of sensitivity, a little bit of um, political correctness. And I know that's a bit of a right wing buzzword, but it definitely is a role. A little bit of Islamist groups downplaying a little bit of left wing groups as well, wanting to explain terrorism through their preferred factor. So whether that's foreign policy or whether that's poverty. They'd rather do that because then it furthers their own interests as well. And a little bit, like I said, a genuine and sincere attempt to enlist the support of communities. And I suppose in fairness to some of the community groups or the professional social service providers, this is very foreign and uncomfortable territory probably as well. So I suppose it's perhaps some way understandable from that point of view. You've touched quite a bit on teachers and frontline workers, and I think education is a fascinating realm for all of this to be considered through. I'm reminded of a World Bank study which was carried out in 2016, which interestingly found that recruits to Islamic militant groups are more likely to be educated and wealthy. Now, that sort of flies in the face of what is the kind of stereotype of people who are targets for radicalization. Um, Generally, you think of them being deprived from deprived areas and almost sort of detached from mainstream society. Does that World Bank study 
study which found recruits to these organisations to be quite highly educated. Does that tally with your experience? And a lot of this links into the previous answer about how we're now seeing this in a, in terms of vulnerability. So we think of things like deprivation or lack of education and opportunities as drivers of extremism. We've downplayed the perfectly coherent worldview that extremists peddle. A lot of coherent and intellectual thought has gone into these worldviews. I think what those studies do is really challenge that notion. If I can be really blunt, CVE, to, again, to use the catch-all term, is really susceptible to a lot of mythology and a lot of assumptions. And one of them you hear a lot of is, you know, education is the best antidote to terrorism and things like that. And we, we have to be really specific by what we mean by that, because as we know, many of the people who have joined extremist groups or gone on to commit terrorist acts, they've come from comfortable backgrounds, the university graduates, things like that. So we do need to be careful about what exactly we mean by education is the best antidote to, to terror. I think there's things we can do in the education system that are better. It is a little more complex than that, though. I think particularly places like Belgium and France, where environmental factors or ideological environments and ideological milieus, these milieus are actually often operating in what we would call more deprived areas. So the obvious one, a place like Molenbeek, was, was all over the news a few years ago. And some of the arrondissements in Paris as well have produced a lot of terrorists. And a lot of them have come through what's sometimes referred to as the prison incubation system. The only thing I'd say to that is I don't think that the poverty and the environmental factors are the cause there. I think they are part of a whole picture of what's going on. And exactly as Saad said, there's kind of a lot of cultural and social barriers being put up between groups of people here. Although in recent years, we have seen a lot of people coming from more deprived backgrounds in Europe in particular, I'd like to see some evidence that it's causal. Saad, in, in your experience, how is the education system in Belgium contributing to the fight against terrorism and radicalization? And I just wanted to say that I fully agree with what Liam just said and outlined with regard to grievances and the, the sources of uh, radicalization of certain individuals. So once again, grievances, the classical ones that uh, we blindly use for comfortable reasons in the CVE discussion, as uh, Liam put it in the last years, are just plain ridiculous. It applies to a limited sub-element those who evolve in specific ecosystems, poor ones, like, for example, in France and Belgium, indeed produced a certain specific type of foot soldiers. If you look at the Muslim community in the United States, it's much more sophisticated. Their origin is much more different and diverse. Let me give you an, an example. The couple that carried out this terrorist attack in Santa Monica in California, they were actually people who were successful professionally, had money and so forth, and could afford, you know, just not engaging in this kind of activity. I remember also in the UK, there was an attack against an airport with a 4x4, and I think it was a doctor from the NHS. If you ask terrorism specialists from North Africa, they will mention countless people for the last 25 years who have been to college, have PhDs and so forth, and still end up in this kind of activities. That's the reason why I'm talking about paying attention to the strength and to the articulation of the ideology that is being used and funneled. That's what needs to be understood. And instead of doing that, we always hide behind freedom of expression or freedom of religion, all those classical democratic concepts that I fully agree with, uh, of course, that we need to protect. But at the same time, they can be misused. And actually, those very sophisticated hybrid groups are very good at using democratic Western concepts to actually hide what's happening behind closed doors. And the second thing that I wanted to say is that going back to grievances and so forth, let me give you one basic example. You know, if you talk to certain political activists or groups or so-called experts or university professors, they say to you, well, you know, you have a fringe of the 
of these communities that are as victim of racism, and that's the reason why you know they end up doing these stupid things and so forth. Let me let me ask you a question. You know, all those thousands of foreign fighters that left for Syria from Tunisia and other countries, are they victims of racism as well in Tunisia? Of course, the answer, the assumption is no. <laughs> it's, it's stupid to say so. It's not about just racism and poverty. That's what I'm trying to say. It's about something much more sophisticated. Hence, the attention that we have to pay to the sophistication of those groups. And by the way, those groups, they have infiltrated the political system, being far-right, Muslim extremists, far-left as well. All of them have infiltrated in one way, shape, or form the political system, the parliaments, sometimes European institutions, you know, in different ways. They are all over the place. And they try to sell the best image of their organizations. And if you have political actors or observers or experts who want to be politically correct or to remain in some form of denial, of course, it creates a fertile ground for these people to continue to disseminate their software. And since they have a long-term perspective, they are not in a hurry and they don't give the impression of being in a hurry, of being intrusive. This is what we call in French in our intelligence jargon, entrism, from entry. You know, you recognize the same word in English, entrism. They are all over the place. I mean, honestly, all over the place. You even have members of parliament. You have experts, doctors. And let me give you two examples. Mohammed Atta, who was the head of the team that did 9-11. This guy was in college in Hamburg. He was doing well in college. Some of his colleagues as well were also conducting high-level studies. One of them was from a very wealthy family in Lebanon and so forth. Do we talk about grievances? Of course, there is no grievances. The second example that I would like to take, Ayman al-Zawahiri, who is number one of al-Qaeda now. He's a surgeon. He's a doctor. He was trained a doctor. So the grievances that we mentioned in Europe, in the Western world, the classical one, poor little guy living in a disenfranchised neighborhood and so forth, do not play a role all the time in this kind of issue. Radicalization doesn't happen only on the Internet. We have a tendency to hear that in different conferences, to read it in different reports and books. You know, this self-radicalization, digital radicalization, this has been the trend. It's also another trend in the last five years. It happens on the street, around the corner, with different types of actors. It's much more sophisticated than that. And we have failed to address that as well. This is much more sophisticated than often, I think, the public at large is led to believe. The analysis is very clear. The prescription and the solutions are obviously much more challenging. When we had events like the Manchester Arena bombing, which is obviously done by a young guy, I think he was 19 at the time, Salman Abedi, we thought, oh my God, this this young guy must have been on the internet. He was a lone actor and things like that. By the time we've got to that point, the kind of mythology of it is already out in the public domain. Salman Abedi was not radicalized alone in his bedroom as like a lone actor. There were extensive foreign terrorist group links. He was friends with a bunch of people who ended up joining ISIS or got convicted of terrorism offenses. His family was in a milieu which knew al-Qaeda commanders like Anas al-Libi, who's the author of the Manchester Manual. It wasn't necessarily ISIS that was radicalizing these people. They were mobilizing or they were becoming that kind of recruitment contact for people who were already radical, who were already in deeply entrenched. The kind of sophisticated recruitment and ideological networks don't spring up overnight. It didn't spring up when ISIS suddenly announced itself on the, on the scene in Syria. 
we've had foreign fighters going from the UK and from other European countries to all sorts of different theatres around the world. And the residue of that and the residue of the growth of the idea system has allowed Islamic State to come in and mobilise people with their triumphalist message. We, we looked at a group like ISIS's social media output, which was, you know, it, it was good. It was impressive compared to other terrorist groups. And we thought, wow, you know, this is this is what's doing it. This is what's making lots of young people join join the jihad in Syria. So I think we were a little bit wrong about that. I would like to see us less treating this as this kind of medical condition that you catch like a virus on the Internet. You've been saying that education is necessary, but it has to be the right type of education. Um, it needs to tackle the thorny issues and you need to foster a really open debate on values. And that's something that often is difficult. It's difficult for teachers. It's difficult for policymakers to come up with the right programs. But it's, I think, worth persisting with. Would, would you agree? And, and if so, I know you've been delivering training yourself in schools, so it'd be interesting to hear how you're finding that there is the requirement to teach fundamental British values, democracy, the rule of law, individual liberty and mutual respect and tolerance for different faiths and beliefs. I don't think many people, apart from the extremists, could possibly disagree with those values and the need to teach them. And there was a lot of resistance to the terminology, fundamental British values, which in my mind became a bit of a red herring. If we treat extremist worldviews as exactly as Saad said right at the beginning, as trying to implement an alternative view of the world, I think we can do a better job because that is what extremism is. You know, if we if we look at Marxist Leninist groups, they want to introduce, you know, a workers paradise, a dictatorship of the proletariat. You know, that means overthrowing the system. White nationalists want a white ethno state. Islamists want an Islamic state. And I use state with a lowercase s there to differentiate from ISIS. This is a fundamental different worldview to liberal democracy. And it shouldn't be surprising that not everybody agrees with liberal democracy because it's not even that old. It's not been around for that long. People have fought and killed and died over differing worldviews since the beginning of time. That's human history. I think if we appreciate that actually what we need to do is do a better job of selling the values of the rule of law and individual liberty and tolerance and respect and democracy, I think we can do a lot better job. When the move was made by the British government in 2014 to introduce so-called fundamental British values into the school system, do you think that educators were at that point or have been since equipped to defend liberal mm. democracy or is that happening at all? I don't want to be too critical of our lovely elected government, but I think they could have done a better job of explaining what exactly fundamental British values meant in educational context. And like I said, I think the fuss over the name became the story rather than what people needed to do. When you actually go to schools and look at what they're doing in the education system, a lot of them are doing things that contribute to the teaching of fundamental British values. It's just about recognising what that is and how you strengthen that. You know, they hold school elections. They learn about different cultures. There are certain aspects like the rule of law and individual liberty, which I think could definitely be strengthened. But I think because it became this fuss over the name, you had, and I don't mean this as a criticism of any of the schools where I saw this, but you'd have people putting up displays that said fundamental British values and it had a little Union Jack uh, and then it would have pictures of the Queen or fish and chips and things like that. And you just, again, that just arises from the confusion. So I don't mean to make that a criticism, but that just shows how confused people were over this. And I think there's a lot of work to do still in, in getting people more confident grappling with that and standing up for liberal democratic values. They're not perfect and they're not a utopian vision, but they're <laughs> they're a little better than other systems that we've tried. And in Belgium, Sad, is this a debate that's raging in terms of how the education system is being utilised or could be utilised to fight against radicalisation? 
I'll make two comments and then answer this question. First of all, we have failed in the last years to oppose all those extremist movements. Those groups, when a youngster shows up and gets in touch with them, they give him a full answer to life issues. Talk about any problem, we will give you an answer. And the package is coherent and comprehensive, very comprehensive. And uh, when you ask youngsters to turn to our values and so forth, well, good luck. They're lost. They have been lost for the last decades for various reasons. That's one thing that needs to be underscored. That's what I wanted to say. Second thing is that you mentioned education. Well, education is a product that can only be produced if you agree about the content and about what needs to be opposed against other movements or other alternative, I would say, influences and so forth. So as long as governments in general do not recognize that what these youngsters have been taught in their neighborhoods for the last decades, as long as there is no recognition that this content can be poisonous, can lead not only to radicalization and terrorist acts, and once again, it's only a very small byproduct of this whole picture, but it does lead to societies and communities that end up drifting away from mainstream. That's how you end up having parallel, self-contained, close communities living in their own bubble and following their own rules and refusing to follow the national rules. Let me give you one very concrete example. If one group or one extremist group teaches people in the community that the constitution of the country is not above the religion, it's just under and that the rules that apply in that society, in that nation, do not apply to that community, you have a beginning of a problem. How can you articulate an educational response if the government doesn't recognize that this is a problem? I don't know how you can send teachers to school if at the same time as legitimate authority you say, well, you know, what's being taught in this church or mosque or whatever and so forth, it's for me okay, it's freedom of religion. They say don't respect the constitution, fair enough. They say don't respect the regulations, the law, the rule of law, fair enough. They say don't respect women's rights, fair enough, we can live with that. And at the same time, you will have a meeting convening to talk about what we will teach the kids at school to teach them the contrary of what they've been taught in what I call the ecosystem. So you go to school, get a lesson in the morning, and in the afternoon you get back to your uncle, to your father, to the butcher of the neighborhood that says exactly the contrary, and it's all fine. This is paradoxical. This is nonsense. And this is what we have been experimenting in different Western countries, and this is leading to no solution, leading to nowhere, only chaos and polarization. And the extremists, they're doing exactly the same. So as long as we hide behind this very nice concept that we have to fight for, but still we don't have to be too naive in using them. That is to say, freedom of expression, freedom of religion. Everybody can say what he wants. So it's like you have in the United States people walking around the street with swastikas and rifles and threatening people and uh, threatening federal states, anybody and so forth. So as long as all this is this fine, it's going to be very hard to put up a system or an educational program. And the last element is, what are you going to teach? 
So with regard to Islam, for example, which very good version of Islam are you going to teach at schools? For example, in North African countries or other Muslim countries, they know what they want to refer to that they consider as perfectly compliant with their legal system, their tradition, their history, and their habits. So here in Europe, we say, well, we don't want to mess with this content. We don't even want to know whether this content implies not respecting the Constitution because it's freedom of religion. And by the way, say, if we want to organize certain classes, we will ask foreign countries to send their own teachers. And this is what we have been doing for the last decades, accepting teachers that do not speak the language and teach totally different values. And governments support that, by the way. They think it's okay. Your question about education is a little bit of a dilemma, I would say. So as long as we have not solved these issues that we have been describing since the beginning of this discussion, we won't be able to make any progress whatsoever. As we say in French, les mêmes causes produisent les mêmes effets. The same causes will produce the same effects in four to five years from now. I'm pretty sure that we will be able to have the same conversation, you and I and Liam, in four years from now. That's the point of uh, pessimism that I wanted to put forward in the beginning of our conversation. Well, that certainly is a pessimistic viewpoint. I mean, I suppose what you're really advocating is a complete shift, which must be tackled at very senior political level, and then that has to infiltrate and, and find its way down the chain. The last 25 years, it has produced no result, because every five, six years, we are dealing with a new group, with new trends, with new tensions. And this has become, actually, if you want to look at it from a democratic standpoint, this has become dangerous because each of these groups that I mentioned in the beginning, you know, the left, the right wing and, and the Muslim, they are all feeding each other. They're actually very happy with seeing each other make some progress because the more one is moving forward, the other one benefits from it. And at the end of the day, we will end up having a very violent society by not addressing the root causes. Look at the situation in the United States with this very unfortunate, dramatic event that happened with George Floyd. They have been putting on the side for decades issues, obvious issues of discrimination that they thought they could just overcome by just forgetting about them and turning a blind eye. And look at the situation now. It's horrible. By the way, we have more death by car accidents per year than by terrorist incidents, if you want to put it very bluntly. But terrorism remains dramatic in its psychological effects. What I'm trying to say, if you continue on this path, what you will end up having is a tremendous, dramatic polarization of society that will lead to political instability. I even wrote it in a paper in 2017 before certain elections, and some officials in some high-level organizations discarded that, only to discover six months later that a couple of countries have been completely destabilized politically, not through a coup d'etat or an invasion by another country just through not addressing and responding to their own deficiencies with regard to polarization. Not addressing those issues creates political instability, which creates polarization and so forth. And at the end of the day, you will have a, a dramatic situations like you witness right now in the United States. Absolutely. If you, on the assumption, on the pessimistic assumption that the type of paradigm shift that you are advocating does not occur, are the resources which are being pumped into prevention programs, community engagement programs all over Europe, do you think that building resilient local civil society is possible? 
it's not possible with the current mm -hmm. paradigm. It's not. There is an expression in Dutch, I will try to translate it in English, you cannot start mopping the floor as long as the water tap is still open. Water is running and you are <laughs> trying to use, the, you know, as many energy as you can, you know, mopping the floor. How ridiculous is that? Close the water tap. Obviously, we're all horrified by what's going on in the US at the moment, but I agree with him. I think it would be a mistake to think that European and other Western countries are immune from the kind of fragmentation and polarization. There's hyper fragmentation and beyond partisanship now, I think there's like sectarian hatred across political divides. And the right gets lumbered with a lot of blame for this. All I see as an outsider is the kind of liberal left progressive bloc is just as guilty of that kind of sectarian hatred as well. One idea that's been rolling around in my head is democracies can survive when we're just talking about little political disagreements. You know, are you going to vote Labour or Conservative, Republican or Democrat? You know, I used to think these were, were minor disagreements within the confines of democracy, but increasingly it's a, a completely different worldview. So we're no longer disagreeing over who the driver is. We're disagreeing on the destination. Just in the last six months, my optimism has fallen off a cliff on this issue. Again, I think it would be a mistake to write off what's happening in the US as just an American problem. I think there's a interconnected roots bursting onto the streets there, and not all of it linked to George Floyd. In terms of the political dynamics in the UK, when it comes to extremism and tackling terrorism, I think that you see a lot more alignment between the centre-right and centre-left. You know, I often follow parliamentary committees in the House of Commons, the Home Affairs Committee and others. And, you know, there's often quite a significant meeting of minds um, yeah. between Labour and Conservative MPs on a lot of these critical issues. So perhaps it's not quite so polarised in the UK. I mean, maybe some of the approaches are different. Um, obviously, some of the philosophy. We did have four or five years of a, of a Labour leader willfully engaging with nonviolent Islamist groups as well and was an apologist for both far left extremism and Islamist. I have to be blunt about that because that's what Jeremy Corbyn was and, and is. He comes from a very hardline left wing background and, and Saad mentioned left wing extremism right at the beginning. And I have no qualms about calling Jeremy Corbyn an extremist. Thankfully, since December, <laughs> the sensible moderates have recaptured the Labour leadership, which is fantastic. So are you um, slightly more optimistic than perhaps sad in terms of finding a form of political leadership in the UK that can address the challenge around nonviolent and violent extremism in terms of tackling the ideology and the drivers of radicalization? No, I'm still desperately pessimistic about that as well. But <laughs> no, I, I think both party leaderships now will be sensible on genuine counterterrorism, on security, on making sure that appropriate sentences are handed out and the rule of law is applied and law enforcement and security services get the funding that they need. I don't have as much qualms about that, but the more tackling of the nonviolent extremist threat. Yeah, no, I'm still pessimistic about that, sadly. <laughs> I have identified in the last years three main root causes on top of the other root causes for the issues we're talking about. Political correctness, denial, and naivete. You find them in different places, different countries to a certain level. I very much appreciated what Liam said about specific profiles or actors. Let me take once again, you know, the dramatic example of poor George Floyd. You know, you had the guy who applied pressure on his neck. And then you had three police officers who were just watching, if not encouraging, and God knows what they did that we don't know about. But at least we have all witnessed that these folks were just standing by and not making any effort, you know, to stop it. Some specialists said, if you do not apply pressure, do not touch the victim, but if you just stand by and watch, you're an accomplice. That's what I mean by denial.
It's not a matter of ignorance. It's not a matter of raising the awareness of certain actors. The worst to me is that many people know a lot of things because we live in an age of information. And uh, some observers that we are mentioning, actually, some have PhDs, travel a lot, and very well educated. They do know, but they choose not to do anything or not to say anything about certain things. And for me, that's dramatic. I am just like Liam, pessimistic in the sense that certain processes, the change of DNA of certain communities, drifting away from mainstream in their ecosystem, this process in certain places has gone so far that to turn it around today is more than a challenge. It's almost impossible. It seems to me that it is a very complicated endeavor. Second of all, it requires a lot of resources. And after COVID, I don't know where many governments in the world would find resources to focus on these issues and to hire the right people to invest in this education and so forth. With that regard, I am very pessimistic, certainly in this COVID context. We really need to change the paradigm, you know, stop using the same metrics of analysis that we have been using for 25 years because it just didn't work. So the last thing that needs to be done is what I call stakeholder analysis. Why is that important? Because certain governments do fund certain groups and actors naively without understanding or wanting to understand that those groups use those funds use this recognition by those governments to use it exactly to counter those governments and to destroy the system that these governments are all about. You have to understand the DNA and the history of those groups and what they're all about. Unless you know that, you do not start engaging with someone who raises his hand and says, I represent this community and I am the right person you should work with. There's one cop from the London Metropolitan Police who said after the terrible riots that took place a few years ago in London, he said, we realized that we were engaging for prevention reasons, of course, the wrong people for years only to discover that what they thought would be a very successful engagement interaction with those uh, so-called you know, representatives of those, those communities just ended up in a total failure. If we do not, in the context of our discussion, address this issue of really analyzing the stakeholders, actually rating them with regard to are they trustworthy, yes or not? Are they compliant with our values? Because forget about education in the schools. Let's start with that, you know, engaging the right actors. Because if you sit around the table with an extremist who is disguised in a law-abiding citizen, happens to be a doctor or an engineer, if you think that's the right way to solve all of this issue and to raise the awareness and the resilience of the community, then it's a big mistake. And I'm afraid that in the next years, the trend seems to continue with those uh, hybrid organizations, those crypto extremist organizations, only to discover in five years from now that we were wrong again. And back again, you know, we will have a discussion with Liam and so forth, uh, trying to figure out what went wrong since the COVID period. That's the type of pessimism that I wanted to express. In your experience, who is best placed, particularly since the 2016 attacks in Brussels, to engage communities and to identify community groups and NGOs that are worth, you know, cooperating with? Is it the police or are there other actors who should be involved in that? It's not really just the police force. Uh, actually, it's a variety of actors from intelligence to law enforcement. 
possibly could sometimes engage even with the academic world, the non-naive one, those who are willing to uh, be intellectually honest. Okay, you could have an outstanding, you know, academic and at the same time uh, having an academic that has a political agenda and do not want to see, you know, certain issues. Let me give you one example without naming and shaming. In 2011, one very famous university professor in Belgium said to a government body in a, in a serious discussion, he said, there is no issue of radicalization in Belgium. Did you hear me? He said there is no radicalization issue in Belgium. Packaging this whole nonsense with stratospheric, you know, explanations using other metrics, other types of equations to discover six months later that Belgium was the biggest provider per capita of foreign fighters in Europe. Isn't that crazy? Unless we address those issues with the right mindset and the right resources, and I know that we will be running out of resources, which is a critical element in the next years, so once again, we are running out of luck with regard to the chronology. We had the 2018 you know, financial crisis, and now we have the COVID. So we're just not in the right period of time, historically speaking. We know that COVID is now a fantastic opportunity for all those groups, all of them. This will produce something pretty horrible in the next years. With regard to public or civil unrest, or what I described in 2017 in a paper, communal conflicts, and conflicts between communities and representatives of the government. All of the things that you see in the U.S., you will certainly see in Europe and other Western countries if we do not take the right steps. And sometimes it's not about money and budgets. It's about the change of paradigm, as I said. And only that can already produce very tangible elements. And with regard uh, to your question, with regard to Belgium, we took away the license of a major mosque from an operator, I would say, that was not doing the right thing. So that's how you start re-engaging the communities in a proper way and rebuilding the resilience to actually stop engaging with the wrong people. That's what I meant by stop mopping the floor, just focus on the water tap, close it. And when you close that, then you will have less problems mopping the floor. I'm going to wrap up with one final question to each of you. Liam, you're very familiar with the PREVENT program, and it's obviously been controversial in many respects in the UK, so that it involves statewide surveillance, it's discriminatory, its methodology isn't evidence-based. Given your experience with PREVENT and with grassroots and community uh, involvement over the years in different guises, if there were one thing that you could change, what would, would it be to improve the outcomes of the PREVENT program? Okay, I'm going to sneak in two really quickly. The first one, exactly as Saad said, um, engage the right people. If you're engaging the wrong people who are, even if inadvertently, exacerbating division and polarization, then we're just making the problem worse. So that's why I'm skeptical of calls to just throw more money at this stuff. Like if, if we're not doing the right thing in the first place, then throwing more money at it is not going to not going to help. But second of all, and I've already touched on this, is let's put the political back into political violence and understand this more as a political problem. And that that doesn't mean negating the safeguarding. That doesn't mean negating protecting people who genuinely are vulnerable or manipulated or coerced. Absolutely, we have, we've got a duty to those people. And that does happen, but it doesn't explain the entire problem. Let's appreciate the problem as more of a political problem and the ideologies behind the violence as much as we disagree with them as coherent and genuinely and often intellectual. And that's not to make a, an endorsement of them, but intellectual idea systems. Sad, I wanted to just ask you about Mechelen 
it obviously has a very diverse population, multiple languages, but it seemed to be a success story in leveraging diversity in order to address potential threats. Would you regard Mechelen to be a particular success story? And if so, are there particular lessons that can be learned from the approach adopted there? I do think Mechelen is an interesting success story. I've met the mayor of Mechelen. He's written even a book. He offered me his book, so I understand and I know what he carried out in in Mechelen. It took him 18 years to get to this result. It's a long endeavor. It gives you an idea of how difficult it is to pick up the pieces after a long period of issues. Mechelen was a disaster zone for years. You know, I, I remember when I was young, I used to go there to visit some friends It was marred with crime, with poverty, and so forth. So what he did, in a nutshell, is a mixture of what needs to be done for various topics. So he was not focusing on extremism or or religion or whatever when he started that. He was just worried about one thing, which is crime and socioeconomics. So he said, this city is for me an open and diverse city, and these are the rules. And actually, those communities, all of them, you know, were happy about the rules. You know, people do respect rules and perimeters if they are very obvious and very well designed. He didn't have anybody departing, you know, for Syria. The levels of crime have diminished considerably in that city. Many people appreciate now all observers, even economic actors and operators want to go back to the city to invest and so forth. That's only to say that naivete or trying to be too correct and too soft is not necessarily helping social cohesion. And that's the reason why I spoke about this concept, this idea of being an accomplice. Not doing anything about certain specific topics that need to be addressed is not necessarily going to produce something positive at the end of the day. And that's what we are running out of time and we are running into trouble in the next year from now in polarization, in in social unrest potentially, All the negative ingredients are being aligned right now. After COVID, you'll see no money, no resources, a lot of negative actors trying to prey on our society. Our governments will not be resilient enough, unfortunately. The economy is in shambles, millions of unemployed. And uh, this is the perfect storm, as you guys say in English. And I'm afraid that the storm is coming uh, upon us very soon. We won't be able to say we weren't warned. That's a really salutary, um, if pessimistic, warning uh, upon which to conclude. Thank you very much to our guests, the prevention expert Liam Duffy and Saad Amrani, the police commissioner for Brussels. I hope you've enjoyed our discussion. Please don't forget to like, comment on and share this episode. You can find out more about Fighting Terror and the Counter-Extremism Project on Twitter using our handle at Fight Extremism and on the homepage of our website. 